How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to the summer season of Michael Easley in Context, where we basically just do whatever we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> a little more intentional than that. Come on. <laughs> I guess that's what Michael Easley in Context is, though. It is whatever you or I want to do. So Pretty much. It's nice, yeah. you know, running your own ship. I'm saying that to you. I'm not, I do sometimes try to steer the ship, but you do run it. Well, we work together well. Yeah, we, do. Yeah. we do. You have good ideas. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes you correct me. Sometimes I correct you, but yep. not too often. I don't yep. want to get in trouble. I appreciate that. So we are starting today a series that we may continue on, I don't know, throughout other seasons. We'll see how it goes, but called 10 Questions. So tell us, where did these 10 questions come from? How did this all come about? Well, you and I had a conversation about series, what we wanted to do yeah. next. And one of my ideas was there was a book by Kent Hughes many years ago, and it was probably the only book he wrote that wasn't like a commentary it's called Disciplines of a Godly Man, if memory serves. And it was unusual because Kent only writes commentaries. Mm. And this book was, it's just a core you know, set of principles. But at the end, he had written a letter to all these prominent Bible teachers and theologians, and he had a list of questions. Hmm. And one of them was, you know, what are the books by your bedside or whatever? Hmm. And it was intriguing. And just thinking back, okay, why don't we do that? So you and I talked about going after like big name, famous people, and, you know, what were these 10 questions? Hmm. And so you actually pushed back and said, Dad, why don't you just ask people that you really know well? And so we came up with a list, including your mom. Mm -hmm. And some of these have been friends of mine for more than, one of them, 50 years. Hard mm -hmm. to believe. But most of them in the 30 to 40 range of mm -hmm. friendships. And so, yeah. So we, And you and I hammered back and forth the questions. Should we tell people what they are or not? Well, they're going to hear them in this, in oh, this interview. Oh, okay. <laughs> Should we tease them with them? Sure. One, well, one of them was their epitaph. I was, was going to say, what's your favorite question? Yeah, well, and I knew that was going to yeah, be the yeah, answer. It's, just because it makes you think about Goodness, yeah. if I had to put my life in a phrase for somebody to read, what would it be? Mm -hmm. uh, what message would I want on mm -hmm. my tombstone or whatever? So that's how the idea got started, and then you and I started coming up with a list. Yep. So we are going to listen to that first interview now, and I think at some point we will turn the tables, and I will interview Michael and ask him his 10 questions. Mm, that might be interesting, <laughs> if I let you do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's my distinct privilege to have one of my best friends in life on the broadcast today. I'm grateful to have Ralph Weitz on the call today. Ralph, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I've moved recently about two and a half weeks ago, so exhausted. Yeah, yeah everything's unpacked, right? The pictures are hung and everything's unpacked? <laughs> no pictures hung. <laughs> That's what we learned in D.C. when our military friends said that 
two things you got to know where your linens are and then get your beds made and hang pictures. That's what they said. <laughs> so we didn't follow that advice in Virginia. I think we went for like eight years and never hung a picture in the upstairs. But anyway, Ralph Weitz and I had this parallel life story. Ralph was uh, on crusade staff. He grew up in Western Pennsylvania and he was interested in forestry as a young person and he worked part of his college degree at Penn State and CNF Austin State University and got his forestry degree. And then through a series of events, he ended up going on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. So for uh, 19 years, he was on the Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. And one of his assignments came to Washington, D.C. for the Here's Life campaign in what year, Ralph? 76. 1976. So he and Katie and the girls moved to uh, the Washington, D.C. area, where he spends almost 40 years after that move. But he worked with a number of folks that those in the crew world know, Spencer Brand and others. And long story short, Emanuel Bible Church was the church that Ralph and Katie were attending while he was on staff. And they were in the middle of a, a building program, a building campaign of some kind, trying to raise money. And it wasn't working out really well. And uh, Ralph took the initiative to talk to some of the leadership there and said, look, there's another way to do this. And Larry Burkett would later call Ralph Weitz the first stewardship pastor in America that he knew of who was actually hired as a stewardship pastor. And Ralph came to Emmanuel and created not just a how-to-raise-money program for building a building, but how to help people in their own life from the stewardship of their gifts, talents, ministry ability, the money they have. And during the years we were in D.C., Ralph had a, essentially four prongs, two of which you developed, and he would take 112 ministries at Emmanuel and help people find their gifting, their interests, their talents, their abilities, and help them plug in to serve in at least one area of the church. Along the way, introduced Crown Financial Studies, had Ron Blue Master Your Money, and then this young whippersnapper named Dave Ramsey came to town, metaphorically, and started Financial Peace University. Ralph, were you one of the first pastors in America to, to jump on FPU? Well, when I started it, I went up to Pittsburgh and wanted to hear him personally because, you know, people have a lot of different views on stewardship. And I wanted to hear what he had to say before we did a simulcast with him. And we were not necessarily the first but that simulcast, we had the largest crowd. I put it on a local radio station that Dave was going to be there. This is before anybody knew who he was. I, I think it was. I think it was the first simulcast. I could be wrong. Well, it was a wonderful. They flew me then down along with Katie because we had the largest crowd to Nashville and watched Dave do his broadcast. And I spoke to the staff and they were asking me questions. And I was going, you need to understand, I've done this once. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my daughter sitting on the other side of the glass as we speak was drugged to that simulcast. I think she was 16 years old and her mom and I said, you're going to this. She did not want to go. She had her arms folded like any good teenager would. And Dave was talking about, you know, if you, uh, save, I forget what it was, $50 a month at age 18 versus starting when you're 40 or whatever, you'll never catch up and you'll have a million dollars. And her eyes lit up, and she looked at Cindy and said, can I do that? <laughs> and so Hannah's probably one of the youngest people I know that started an IRA. 
So she was like 17. We got her an IRA going. And even in college, she contributed to that IRA. So anyway, all that prattling to say Ralph has been a champion of helping people get out of debt, manage their money well, learn to live under their income, not just for financial reasons, but for stewardship reasons, being a good follower of Christ. And you've seen a lot of people get out of debt. You use the fishbowl a couple of times on the pulpit with cutting up credit cards in the fishbowl. And so you've been at this a long time. And all that aside, we're just great friends. We both went to CNF Austin, go Lumberjacks. And that was a connection we had, similar people in our path. God used that and we were together in ministry almost 12 years in D.C. So all that preamble to say, I wanted to get Ralph's top 10 answers to these kind of questions. So let's go to it. Anything you want to add to that, Ralph, or correct me? Or <laughs> Well, yeah, I do need to correct you from eastern Pennsylvania, not western, near Philadelphia. Well, see, I like western better, but that's why I said western. <laughs> So we've come up with these 10 questions, and I'm going to read them. And, Ralph, you get a chance to give us your opinions, ideas, your wisdom. So the concept of in context is about how we understand the context of Scripture when it was written and how we apply it in our biblical worldview. So as an introductory question, tell us about your context and the context in which you've worked and lived, although I've given our folks a good survey of that. You want to fill in some of the blanks. Well, Michael, as, as you know, the years with Crusade and also with Emmanuel were the, the major areas of my life that participated in doing ministry. And the 25 years at Emmanuel with the privilege of being involved with exciting things like the building campaigns or helping people literally get out of debt, people walking up to me and saying, this week, paying off my mortgage. And the excitement on their face was so thrilling. And also working with people with the issue of benevolent fund, the family recovery fund, which was really involved in people's lives with their finances. So as we got to the point in our lives where, you know, I retired from Emmanuel, I spent six years with Fairfax County Park Authority working as a coordinator of volunteers at a public gardens we realized the point in our life we needed to move to a place where we were close to one of our daughters, either Williamsburg or Charlotte. And we picked Charlotte. We moved down here eight months ago. We'd hoped to have a house before that, but God had planned that we would be in a, in a rental in a townhouse. And so two and a half weeks ago, we moved into our retirement home as best we can figure out. And the issue that we're trying to figure out, frankly, and this is a good one for everybody that's contemplating, you know, what about retirement? Or what does that mean? Do we even believe in that word? Is what do you do now to determine what God wants you to be involved in? And with the virus going on, it's a real challenge. Do I have a part-time job? Do I volunteer someplace? I've put in volunteer applications a number of places uh, where I'm qualified for, both in a secular and in a Christian world. There's a place here locally that works with pastors who have gotten in trouble and struggling in crisis. And one of those crises, I think, is the issue of money. And I'm willing to volunteer with them, but it's the issue of the virus going on right now. So the context is, what do we do now in retirement? I'm still volunteering in a cleanup in a green way, getting trash and 
things like that cleaned off the greenway with several other folks that have been doing it for years. But I'm now looking at other volunteer opportunities, but I can't go to those places because the virus. Yeah. So that's where we're at. That's our context. Well, and again, for folks that don't know you, one of the things that Ralph and I got along so well when we co-labored Emmanuel was, I call it the roll up the sleeve ministry. If there was some mess, literal or metaphorical that needed cleaning up, Ralph was always right there. We might have someone in the hospital that was a really very complicated situation or a marriage that was complicated or maybe a shut-in that had been hurt by the church. And I could look at Ralph and let's go. And he was always willing to step in. So even though he was a part of a pastoral team of a very influential church, he never lost his roots in the sense that, no, this is about people and about literally and metaphorically helping them clean up sometimes. So, you know, it's interesting you talk about retirement and you and I've had this conversation a little bit. This has been one of my big concerns in my semi-retirement is, you know, do you travel and visit grandchildren? And we did a whole series on this called What Now? Obviously, it pitches to an older audience, but, you know, when you're 20, 30, and 40, you don't realize how quickly your life's going to change. And when empty nest comes, you have a lot of freedom to do things. And it's good to think about that early. What has been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? You know, determining, I think, what does God want me to do? Going on crusade staff was a real change in my life. My goal was to be a forestry professor. I had my scholarship, full scholarship for Yale and graduate work. And I heard Bill Bright speak. And I then got on my knees and said, God, what do you want me to do? And not hearing audible voices from God, but I sense God saying, apply to Crusade staff and see what will happen. Well, it was an incredible journey of 19 years. I spent some personal time with Bill Bright. It was a, a real privilege. And then joining the uh, staff of Emmanuel was a turning point in our life in a number of ways that we were saying, okay, God, what do you want us to do now? The ministry was changing in Washington, D.C., and we were just not sure. So how do we discern this? And we really sensed that this was a ministry that God had kind of prepared both Katie and I for to be involved in the ministry there at Emmanuel. And it was a great opportunity to see things develop that I had learned on Campus Crusade for Christ staff. Besides just doing the stewardship, Michael, you and I teamed up many times to do the Discovering Emmanuel class, which was the membership class. And then I also taught a number of classes in apologetics, New Testament survey, false teachers, which were called cults, that wanted to show that stewardship pastor was not just concerned about your money and what you're doing, but also about your spiritual walk Mm -hmm. and how your sound doctrine. And then we developed a match class, which got people involved in ministry, a ministry festival, which we turned the gym into a, a trade fair for the ministries of the church. So that people new to the church in the summer and fall would be able to find out how to sign up and be involved in different ministries. So it was, it was a great joy to be involved in that. But retiring from there, we still had some financial things that we were working on towards the end. And uh, joining the staff of Fairfax County Park Authority, all of a sudden I'm in a very secular setting, in a setting that uh, challenged me and how my walk was before them, my concern for the people that are around me that don't know the Lord, that are struggling with things in life. 
And how do I do that without crossing that line that gets you in trouble when you're in government at the same time you speak spiritually? And it was six years of doing that that was surprising to me how closely I got to those people because I could speak both spiritual truths, but also caring truths into their lives. And they, to me also, it was a Hmm. mutual experience, but to be able to speak spiritual things in a secular setting was important in that walk. I think it's good for uh, all of us to be reminded. And, you know, you said, you know, that's, that's your challenge now is finding out what's next. And I, I do think when you're in a routine, whether it's going to classes in college or working in a job that you're just starting out or changing careers or going back for grad school, it's sort of paint by numbers. And then when all those props are taken away, it's like, whoa, what do I do? You know, and so the one takeaway just from hearing you say that is this is an ongoing process. And you and I both have watched people retire and become sedentary, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And their routines become kind of drab. And you nor I want to be that way. And anyway... I know this is hard, and as I write these questions, I think, how do I answer this? But do you have a key verse or favorite book of the Scripture that, that you go back to again and again? The book of uh, the Bible I have most marked up is the book of Ephesians. And the passage that every evangelical very readily goes to is, For by grace you men saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. And a sound theology of how we live the Christian life and how we come to Christ is not by any works. But the unfortunate thing, I think, is that we evangelicals stop at verse 9 in chapter 2, and we don't go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And some of my theological friends want to put a, a wall between verse 9 and verse 10 because it was, you know, that's salvation. And verse 10 is separate from salvation. And I like to point out that in verse 10, it says, created in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. Prepared beforehand. That's even before my salvation. So these two are wound together. It's not because I'm going to earn my salvation. That's already set. It's because... God wants to use you and me. Michael, we've had the the discussions. We are fallen people, sinners that need to see God's work in our life. But the holy God of the universe cares that we are involved in ministry that he's called us to. Amen, amen. You and I have talked about Ephesians 2.10 for (laughs) 15, 20 years now. All right, let's move on. After the Bible. Are there two or three books that were particularly influential in your life? Well, Michael, when I worked for the United States Forest Service in the summer of 67, uh, Superior National Forest, I was in a Job Corps trailer camp, and there was no TV. There was no radio. It was You turn on a radio, and it was all the static from the Northern Lights. It was just in recordings. I mean, you know didn't exist back then, except for uh, records. So I had a book by George Washington Carver uh, about his life and his biography. And I read that. It was a thick biography, and it gave a lot of details of his life. He was a godly man, grew up his, he was born into slavery as an infant, but 
and his mother and sister were sold into slavery. It was one of these things was a horrible story. And yet he ended up on the staff at Iowa State College. Unheard of. And yet he ended up being called to Tuskegee and no fame, no fortune there. But he went and did incredible things. I admired him as a scientist. I admired him as a Christian. When he was asked to come to United States Congress to testify before a committee, they gave him 10 minutes and he informed the committee. He says, it takes me 10 minutes to unpack my boxes that I'm bringing. And they said, you have, after they heard him for 10 minutes, you have all the time you want. You to spend two hours with them. The sad thing about it was he had to come up in the freight elevator. Mm to the United States Capitol, a brilliant man. And I really admire him to this day, what he did and accomplished. A couple other books. One is Major Bible Themes. You're familiar with that book mm-hmm. uh, by Lewis Berry Schaefer, founder of Dallas Seminary. It's just great theology that is put in, in so readable form. I've used it in Bible studies where I want some men to learn good theology and not get them deep into the weeds. And then Bill Bright's book, Come Help Change the World, which was written just before I joined Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm. The whole idea of making an impact in the world. That was what, you know, my first experience on Crusade staff was spreading dried manure on Bill Bright's front yard. (laughs) And uh, we were establishing winter uh, lawn and it was dried stuff. It wasn't anything smelly or anything like that. But I thought I was going this direction to Yale, and now I'm out here in somebody's front yard <laughs> uh, spreading manure. But <laughs> A fitting metaphor, yeah. <laughs> but the opportunity that I had at Arrowhead Springs, I was involved in several ministries. One of them was down at Juvenile Hall. It's the largest county in the United States. And the kids there were runaways. They had all kinds of problems. And I would go down there on Friday night, normal date night, and there'd be about 40 of us there, and we would be involved in ministry. But all that comes out of Bill Bright's Come Help Change the World. Mm. And so those are the three books that I really were so foundational for who I am as I look back over my life. Now, that's all pre-stewardship stuff that Larry Burkett's books and Dave Ramsey's books and others that I've read over the years. In fact, when I was on Crusade staff, Larry Burkett was on our staff for a couple of years. Hmm. Dr. Bright had challenged him to help us with our finances, and his bottom line was, you don't pay him enough. <laughs> that was good news and bad news. Good yeah, exactly. News. You get to go raise the money. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Larry. But yeah. he wrote his book. His first book was while he was on Crusade staff. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah, he and Ron Blue are sort of the forefathers of the uh, evangelical stewardship notion. Yeah, so, you know, just as a, as a caveat, too, we didn't mention, you were the administrator of the very first what would become known as the Family Life Weekend to Remember conferences when Don Meredith had started that, and then a young whippersnapper named Dennis Rainey was also on staff, and Bob Horner did a conference for engaged, right, couples. Yes. And, uh, you, and it was for crusade staff. Yeah, only. And you, you organized that and set it up so they could do their talks. And uh, afterwards, there was a there was a revolt among crusade staff going, wait a minute, what about married couples? We need that information. 
<laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. So anyway, let's go on here. This segues somewhat. And again, this one, when I write these and read them, this is kind of challenging to answer. But what is one of the biggest lessons you've learned at this point in your life? Well, I, you know, they fold into each other. The two things that I think about is is what I mentioned earlier is that the holy God of the universe wants to use sinners like us. He wants us to be involved in his harvest and his vineyard. And the other thing is, and you and I joke about this, Michael, but it's the doctrine of propitiation. Like God is satisfied with what happened on the cross. I can't add to that. If I try, I violate the whole principle of grace. Mm. And so God is totally satisfied that I need to rest as far as earning my salvation, but I need to work at the issue of my sanctification, my spiritual growth in him. My salvation is totally earned by what Christ did. My sanctification is involved in my yielding to what God wants to do in my life. Mm. Hendricks was fond of saying, uh, nothing you can ever do will make God love you more. Nothing you could ever do would make God love you less. And that's hard from many of us who came out of our Armenian backgrounds where your, you know, your works and your contribution to your salvation play a role. So what is the one thing that you long for every believer to know, to do, or to live accordingly? Well, we've already alluded to the 25 years of being on the staff at Emmanuel, which was about stewardship. And I would love for people, and this is a life walk. It's not, you know, we would say when we were going through Larry Burkett's material or Ron Blue's or Dave Ramsey's material, the leaders, and I would make sure my leaders would know this, we have not arrived. We're on a journey, a process of idea of being generous and that giving goes far beyond just the idea of tithing 10% or money. It's, it is our lives that we give to others, to our families, to we give away what God has given to us. That's the incredible thing. You know, is John Wesley, and I wish I knew the numbers, but he made an incredible fortune with the hymns that he and his brother wrote and his whole goal was to die broke. And part of the way in which that money was used, he would go down to debtor's prison and take those people that owed debts and pay the debts in order to free people up. I know there's a movement today that I kind of, I kind of feel a little bit of a sensitivity towards when I hear about people that have bail that are not dangerous people, but they're in prison because they can't pay their bail. You know, there's a little bit of what Wesley said then of taking people out of debt. I want people to see that they can be givers of not just money, but themselves to their neighbors, to their family, to their community, so that they see Jesus Christ in that giving. Mm. Greatest disappointment in your context, whether it was ministry, vocation, Christian community, so forth. Wow. Well, Michael, you and I have had this conversation a number of times because we can name names and there's at least one person who's been in Christian evangelical news in this past year that is easily named that have walked away from the faith or have gone down the road of embezzlement or infidelity. And a few of these individuals over the years 
have been people that I admired. And that's, you know, I had one of my disciples choose to go down a theological road that was totally contrary to what we're talking about now, that you're saved by grace. It is the desire that you and I have that we could come alongside a brother or sister who is about to fall off the cliff and say, what can I do to talk you down? What can I do to draw you back to the saving life of Jesus Christ? Mm. It was uh, one of our faithful students years ago at Arkansas State University who went to Florida and got involved with what is now known as the International Church of Christ. It was in its infancy back then. And he came back to Jonesboro, all committed to the Church of Christ view of doctrine and all that. And we had dealt with it, my roommate and I, Joe Faulkner, and I had very involved with Church Christ Doctrine there in Arkansas. And our friend, his name was Bob, came back and Joe and I decided we're not going to go head to head against him. We're going to love him. And we met with him several times just as friends. And we chose not to go up against his theology. Well, about two months later, he says, Ralph, can we go to breakfast? And that was really different for Bob and me. But we went to breakfast the Holiday Inn, and he goes, I give up. Mm. You and Joe have loved me so much and have committed yourself to me. I see where I was wrong. And it blew me away. Mm. Got at work because mm-hmm. we cared about him to love him back to a sound doctrine of saved by grace and not by baptism or anything like that. And you don't have to go out and witness to be saved. It's a result of being saved. Mm. Greatest encouragement in your context, again, ministry, vocation, community. Well, Michael, I already alluded to it earlier about when I would see people grasp the excitement of the idea of being out of debt but not just out of debt, that they would actually see a life pattern of being givers, being a witness for Christ in their community, in their neighborhood, that they're not just in the Christian community ghetto, some people call it, but they can go outside that. But as people come to the point of, give example I used earlier about saying to me, I am paying off my mortgage this week. And I'd say to them, how does that make you feel? And his big smile gets on the face and they get all excited and all that. And they say, oh, it's exciting. It's thrilling. I say, now what are you going to do? And a look on their face like, what do you mean? What am I going to do? Can't we celebrate for a minute? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to celebrate for the minute. That's okay. But now what are we going to do? Because it's now opening up so many opportunities for you to consider you know, do you want to go into ministry? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And it's so different. You know, Dave Ramsey and others, we talk about this somewhat cookie cutter thing of getting out of debt, of being givers, of doing all these things that are financially sound. But once we get to that, we're out of debt, it becomes a big funnel outwardly rather than narrowly down to, okay, you do these things. Because now we have a lot of freedom in Christ to do a lot of things that maybe we couldn't do before because we had to have a certain kind of paying job or we had to be doing these things and not be able to spend our time in ministering in so many ways. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's funny. I I was with Dave not long ago, and I was trying to tease him and be funny, which you know, you know me, it doesn't always work. And I said, "Okay, Dave, I've been living like no one else, so I can live like no one else." I'm not sure what that means now. <laughs> he just looked at me. <laughs> Probably like Jesus, have I been with you so long, you idiot? You know. <laughs> But it is, you know, the temptation of living like somebody else, boats, cars, golf, travel, big house, whatever. That's not, you know, that, that can't be our affection. You know, there's got to be something deeper. And you, you've struck on it a couple of times now. You know, what, what does Christ want you to do? And that's also a little fearful because, you know, it's unknown. And it seems like, you know, the old joke about here, the 10 things I've written done on a piece of paper, Lord, would you bless them versus there's nothing on a piece of paper, Lord, you know, lead me, guide me, help me. I use my stewardship, my experience going forward. And it is interesting. But Just to tag on to that, Michael, because we're dealing with, okay, when you get out of debt and all that, and the possibility of building wealth. And people would come to me and say, you know, so-and-so is building a addition on their house mm-hmm. or they bought this expensive car. Or they bought a lake house. And I would say to them, that doesn't bother me. Here's what I want to ask. How are you going to glorify God with that? Mm-hmm. And I think of the lake house and you and I spend many retreats there. And I had my men there and others that it was used for ministry. And the other question I always ask is, can you use it with an open hand? Mm -hmm. In other words, what's God going to do with it? That's always hard for me because I'm a sentimental person. I like uh, when I've gathered something together, I like to keep a hold of it. And, you know, you got to let go. And how does God want me to let go? And the old uh, too good to own, too good to loan. Second to last question. If you could write to your 18-year-old self a letter, what advice would you give yourself? Wow. Well, at 18 years old, I was involved with a lot of fundamentalist background of you got to do this, you got to do that. And you, uh, problem is, is you judge yourself and you judge others. And it's not a very joyful experience spiritually. And so to grasp that, and fortunately, within the next four or five years, hearing Bill Bright and others freed me up from that fundamentalist idea. But to Remember that God's involved in all this. Trust him in the process. See what he is going to do rather than what you think you should do. And part of that letter, Michael, and you know this is about my life, is it was advice I would give myself back then, but it was advice that I followed later in life is don't forget to remember your mother. You knew I grew up with a single mom back when that wasn't a word. And She did a lot of sacrificing. She did a lot of work. I don't know how she pulled together the money to buy several things for me that I look at even to this day that I go, how did she get the money for that when it was a struggle to get just food on the table each week? But the idea of not forgetting your parents as you get older and that middle age when, you know, you're working hard. They got your own kids. What about your mother and your father? And uh, I worked hard at trying to build a relationship with my father. That didn't always work out. But with my mother, I was there to the end of enjoying what she was all about and what she had worked hard to do. And her life was a difficult life in a lot of different ways, going up in depression and losing two marriages and 
been serious illness the last five years of her life. But I wanted to be there. I would, I would give that to anybody who has a possibility of doing it. Do not forget, as advice to an 18-year-old, as you get older, don't forget your parents. You did that remarkably well. I can remember many, many times watching you peel out of work on you know, punch the clock, so to speak, metaphorically, and get in your truck and drive to spend, you know, a day or a day and a half or two days with your mom, helping her with her house and her project. And you were an example to all the staff at Emanuel how faithful you were to take care of your mom as a good son. So, well, Michael, those staff, just as a reminder, they drove up to my father's funeral and showed up unbeknownst to me that he, mm. that they would be there. And then five years later, six years later, they came and played music at my mother's funeral mm. because the Mennonite church that she was in was not going to have um, adequate musical activity for my mother's church. It was amazing to see those men drive four hours to be at my mother's mm-hmm. funeral. Mm-hmm. Pretty sweet. Okay, so this is the last question. What do you want your epitaph to say? Well, I've bounced back and forth between two things. One that I wrote and gave to my wife, and she reminded me, epitaph being internally in him. Talked about Ephesians. I mean, the word in him or in Christ shows up repeatedly in Ephesians. Well, now it would be eternally. The other one that I've been more recently is serve God, serve others. That's my LinkedIn is that's my little expression in LinkedIn is serve God, serve others, because that's what we need to be all about. Not that God needs us to accomplish something great for him. We need to serve him. What does he want us to do? And we serve him when we serve others also. Ralph White's uh, friends now since 1993, I guess, technically, when we met and continues to be a brother, an encourager, a sharpening influence in my life, a guy that I've admired, a guy that you were the first one to just mention you had a goal of paying your house off at a certain age. And I thought, wow, that's not a bad idea. And so uh, Cindy and I did same. And I remember on more than one occasion, Cindy and I asking you questions about this or that with our retirement, with our funds, with different things. And uh, God's used you in, in our lives and I think I've told this story before on the broadcast, but not sure. But when, uh, when, you know, being in ministry, you and I bury a lot of people. And that's one of the joys and and sadnesses. But I remember when uh, one of our dear friends, J.T. Walker, died suddenly after a battle with large cell lymphoma, I think, in watching you step in and, and help and many times watching you step in and help in a crisis. And Cindy said, when you die, I'm calling Ralph. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, Ralph is a bit older than me. I hope you don't know something I don't know here. (laughs) Well, he's going to have to outlive you because when you die, I'm calling Ralph. (laughs) Well, as the dates, you graduated what year from Stephen F. Austin? Well, we do have a little 10-year differential there, right? 10-year differential. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, I wasn't going to bring that up, but since you did, you're older than me, so there. (laughs) (laughs) But you're wiser, Ralph. See, that's the benefit. Uh, Older and wiser. I call you you when I want wisdom. Hey, it's mutual. And God, you know, 
that's one of the other things about all these questions is, you know, iron sharpens iron, and you have been that in my life for many, many years through some really difficult times and some celebrating times. And Ralph, love you. Appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Give Katie a hug from Cindy and me and greet your precious daughters and sons-in-laws next time you talk to them. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for your loving care. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.